We all have needs and desires and seek to discover our own erotic journey. You've come to the right place. This is Seek, Discover, Create with Lexi Silver, presented by SDC. In the next hour, we're here to answer your burning questions about relationships, sexuality, and health from the leading sex experts and professionals. Now, here is your host, Lexi Silver. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to SDC Presents Seek, Discover, Create. I'm your host, Lexi Silver. And as usual, we have a very lectural show for you today. We're going to be talking about sex and specifically what you can do to map your desire and have the best sex of your life. Joining me today to talk about sex is Dr. Jamie M. Grant, the author of Injustice at Every Turn, a report on the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, and Great Sex, Mapping Your Desire. Jamie is an equity expert, researcher, and trainer who has been active in LGBTQ, women's, and racial justice movements since the late 80s. Today, we're going to discuss what desire mapping is and how people can learn to uncover their fears and what's holding them back from living a truly authentic and fulfilling sex life. We're also going to talk about about what sex is all about beyond a blur of body parts and fluids and moans. And we'll be talking about the power that lies in telling our sex stories. And later in today's show, I'll be answering some questions from you, the audience, during Letters to Lexi. If you want me to give you some lectual advice with the bonus help of my special guest or guests each week, write into me at Lexi at SDC.com and connect with me on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lexi Silver. That's Lexi with an I, Silver with a Y. You can also check out LexiSilver.com for more info. Now, before we start our chat with Jamie, I want to thank our sponsor, SDC.com, your and my expert source of of exclusive information about sex, health, and relationships, where you can also access the world's largest lifestyle dating platform. Use my special promo code 7070 to get two months free at sdc.com. That's 7070 to get two months free at SDC. So get ready to fearlessly embrace your lexuality with Jamie and I. Let me tell you a little bit more about my special guest today. And I'd like to say a lot more, but it will take me about half the episode to get through the amount that this woman has accomplished. So I'm going to try to keep it brief and you can can always get more information about her at uh, jamiemgrant.com after this. So Dr. Jamie M. Grant is the author of Injustice at Every Turn, a report on the National Transgender Discrimination Survey and Great Sex Mapping Your Desire, which you can get at politicsandprose.com. And you can also find more information on her site. Jamie is an equity expert, researcher, and trainer who's been active in LGBTQ women's and racial justice movements since the late 80s. This led to a doctoral study in feminism, gender, and sexuality and the creation of the Desire Mapping Tool, which she has offered via workshops on campuses throughout the U.S. and at conferences around the world. So if you've been lucky enough to <laughs> be in attendance for one of those, you will understand what I mean. But if you haven't, you need to check that out. It will completely change your life. Jamie has also spearheaded a number of transformational equity projects and developed tailored equity programs and social justice communication workshops for a large number of campuses, movements, and organizations. Grant's academic research has appeared in many places, including the Reader's Companion to U.S. Women's History, which was edited by Gloria Steinem, Wilma Mankiller, and Barbara Smith, and the Harvard LGBTQ Policy Review. And as I mentioned before, she's also the creator and host of the podcast Just Sex at justsexpodcast.com, where you can get all the links. Welcome to my show, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here finally. It's just great. Oh, Thanks wow. for inviting me. 
Well, I'm excited because I know that our listeners are going to have a very good time learning more about how they can start to have the best sex of their lives yeah. by doing a lot of reflection, I think. I hope this is going to stimulate those kinds of conversations and that kind of thinking with people. And I love your podcast. I love it. Just Sex. For me, when I heard just even your first episode where you were explaining what the podcast is all about, what does the title mean to you? Why did you decide to call it Just Sex? Yeah. Well, as I said in that premiere episode, I've always kind of been bugged by when people say, oh, it's just sex. You know, uh, you know, we're getting together, but you know, it's just sex. And over many years, I just kept asking my friends and my clients and my loved ones, you know, what do we mean when we say just sex? And I think what we're trying to say is this is like a fleeting situation that's not going to maybe be a relationship or it's someone I just had this really hot thing in passing with. And, you know, what I really came to understand in listening to people's stories about just sex and really taking in what happens for us, even if we're in a closet with someone playing spin the bottle in seventh grade uh, <laughs> or in an alley with someone after a time at a club for 15 minutes and we don't even know their name, whatever just sex we're having is really a story about ourselves, about how we are in those moments and who we are and what we put into it and what we take out of it. And we can either be generous and connected and there for something hot and amazing that becomes a great part of our story. Or frankly, we can be an asshole. And we, can just, <laughs> we can just take and we can really not even care about the humanity of the other person, right? And that doesn't become anything about anybody else, but about us and our sex story right? And mm -hmm. our, our history. So for me, if I am opening my body, my genitals, my orifices, if I'm letting someone inside me or going inside them, even if it's for 10 minutes and I don't know your name, I think that's meaningful. I think it matters. And I think it becomes, you know, a really important part of our story. So what it made me think about through that exploration and really that coming to that understanding and belief for myself is that just sex and the other idea about just sex, which is just as in balances power, just as in takes care of everybody in the room, mm -hmm. sees everybody's humanity as equally important, justice, right? That if our just sex is just sex, <laughs> <laughs> then we're growing ourselves and our communities and our hot, sexy lives in the ways that we want and need to. So I wanted to have my pod really look at both of those things because a lot of the communities that I live and work in are communities whose our bodies are targeted, right? Some places our sex is illegal, uh, you know, because it's queer, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I really wanted to look at what's the impact of having sexism, racism, queer and transphobias, other things bearing down on us as we form ourselves. I would say one of the central things I found in doing desire mapping over time is that everyone describes themselves a certain way and says, this is my identity, this is who I am, blah, blah, blah. And very, very often their sex and who they desire and what they want to do doesn't quite match up. There are big mm -hmm. gaps between who we say we are in our waking and walking lives and what we actually want to do and who we want to do it with and how we want to do it. And that gap is about the injustice. It's about the shame and the feelings of unworthiness and the feelings of like, well, I can't have what I 
want because of those, you know, because of sexism or because Mm of racism or, you know, everybody thinks they're the wrong kind of whatever they are. You know, I'm the wrong kind of pacifist lesbian because I like fantasizing about military gangbang scenes, right? I'm the wrong (laughs) kind of gay man because I don't actually like anal, you know? Uh, I'm the wrong kind of monogamous, cisgendered, straight, married woman of 20 years because whenever I get off, I'm always fantasizing about someone else, right? So all of us carry these things that actually prevent us from being close to each other, right? Actually like being, you know, being present Mm -hmm. in our sexuality with our people. So that's the just sex and just sex piece. I kind of wanted to bring them together and say, well, let's have all the just sex we want, but let's not pretend it doesn't mean anything, right? And let's think about how if we balanced power and we really looked at the ways, you know, injustice is preventing us from even knowing ourselves, we actually are going to have hella better sex. That's such a powerful message. It's just exactly (laughs) what we need to be thinking about. And for me, it's really something to be able to myself personally be able to live my life authentically and to be able to have more of a match between what I want and what my life is actually like. I'm very lucky that I'm able to do that, that the environment that I live in, my family, the structure I have set up for myself, my work environment, Environment, everything is set up to allow me to thrive in that environment as my authentic self. But I know that is not the case for the majority of people. And there's a lot that holds us back. And you were talking about that. You said, you know, feeling shame, feeling unworthy, you know, experiencing discrimination, you know, being threatened to have your job removed from you if you are coming out as, you know, uh, as gay or non-monogamous. What are some of the things that would contribute to impeding us from being that kind? of authentic sexual person that we might want to be. Right. Well, there's the structural things that you were just talking about, right? There's the external things like, you know, patriarchy, you know, racism, you know, and there's things like wanting to keep our jobs, right? Which is real. But then there's the stuff in our own communities. I mean, one of the things I've really worked hard on in mapping is trying to, in my workshops, help people think about how they're policing each other. They're policing Mm. each other's genders. They're policing each other's sexuality. There's so much um, performative stuff around our sex and sexuality. You know, it's happened to me so often working on these college campuses where uh, I had this one incredible experience with a, a young woman who was running the student government who was thought of as super cool and had lots of sex partners, very empowered. That was her story. That was her narrative. I'm a campus leader and I'm very empowered and having exactly the sex that I want. Lots of hookups, very chill. And when we mapped, what she told everyone was actually she hated the campus hookup culture. She wasn't having good sex. The sex sucked, which when we dug a little deeper, you know, mostly these hookups were happening in the basement of senior men's houses at keg parties. Everybody was drunk when they made their selections. Mm. And, you know, and the men basically sucked, right? (laughs) The women... I was saying, hey, hookup culture can be great depending on what's in your hookup culture. I'm in a hookup culture where nobody drinks. People don't make their choices in a beer, you know, beer stained wood floor, you know, dark basement, make them by the light of day. 
And what she said was she didn't want relationships out of the hookup culture, but she wanted intimacy. She wanted to get off. Mm. She actually wanted the people that she was hooking up with to like care about her as a human being afterwards and not sort of scuttle away like there was something shameful then that they should not even talk about Mm -hmm. and that she should act like she didn't care that they were acting that way Mm -hmm. and that you know she realized after we mapped that she really wanted to have hookups that that had some intimacy and connection and and discussion and playfulness and not just kind of you know wham bam thank you ma'am ish kind of stuff which she really kind of built her reputation on as being like, "Mm, you know, I'm one of those girls that really just doesn't give a shit. So I'm cool. So, um, so what I find is in our communities of even sexually liberated folks, we are often, especially now because it's such a performative time because, you know, because of social media, everybody's performing for the camera. Everybody's recording, putting it out and getting likes or whatever. So, I mean, even the idea of being authentic in this particular moment that we're in, it's so much more difficult. Uh, I'm, I feel really grateful. I'm not coming of age at a time like this, right? Where I have a sense of all these people on the balcony watching me form myself and having opinions about it. I mean, you always have that as an adolescent, but now you actually really have it, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm just sort of getting lost, but what you were saying, the impediments that Um, you know, there's the bigger structural things that we're dealing with, whether it's religion, our coaches, our parents, our, you know, that stuff, the way we've formed our families and our communities, and then we have each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I hope happens in the mapping workshop is people really start to think about who is in that intimate community with you and who is actually helping you grow and who is really just not got your best interests in mind and is performing a kind of friendship and also performing a kind of policing mm. of who you are um, and start to start to curate, man. You know, this is, <laughs> it's super important. You know, my four horsemen of the apocalypse, I call them, you know, that's <laughs> supposed to bring disaster in my world. My four horsemen, there just isn't anything they do not know about me. The mm-hmm. most shameful things, the things that are really the hardest to expose about me. Um, and that conversation that we've been in for some of us for 30 years, some of us 20, some of us 10 of my four horsemen, you know, that that conversation is life-changing, life-saving, life-expanding. I, you know, I don't have to hide. Hmm. And that's, that's really important if we're going to grow our sexuality and have the kind of sex we really want to be having. And it's liberating to be able to strip off the the shame, the fear, uh, the fear of judgment, the fear of you know just not being accepted or understood or heard by other people who might not really understand your story. And what you were saying about your you know your experience with uh, this one particular uh, woman who was experiencing uh, who was you know in this community uh, this hookup culture and she just really didn't like it um, by telling her sex story to you know to herself and by being able to recognize these are all the things, these are all stories. They're not meaningless. They've also taught me that these are things I don't want. And so let's talk more about sex stories. I love sex stories. I mean, beyond the- I've heard a million (laughs) of them and I never get tired of it. They're always amazing. I'm always hearing a new sex story that just blows me away. (laughs) 
I love sex stories and I love listening to people and you're very right. And I mean, on even a basic level, I think by hearing people from my community and hearing people, you know, who talk to me, they come and see me at events and, you know, they're like, oh my God, this thing happened. I have to tell you. I love being that person. I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> I've always been that person, right? From the time I was young, I was always that person. And, um, you know, over time I realized, oh, this is actually a thing, yeah. right? This is something I could study. And this is something I could learn more about. And it's really how the mapping tool came to be was that um, back in the 90s, when we we're at the height of the AIDS crisis, and was really shameful to talk about sex then being queers and that people were dying. It was such an extreme time. My best friend was opening a lesbian health clinic and wanted to sort of have a weekend where people just talk to each other. And we decided we would have four people get up and tell their sex biography, huh. start to finish. And after that happened, the entire weekend was like electric. It was like people could not stop talking to each other about everything. It was <laughs> could feel liberation. You know, here we are where you've got senators on the floor of the Senate saying all this shit about you as gay people and your sex every day and that you deserve death. And in 1990, all these people got up and talked about exactly what they were doing, their pleasure, their connection to each other. And it was so great because we're in this lesbian services space and we're in four different women, all different ages, races, you know, different kinds of gender expression, although we didn't even call it that then. And they were having all kinds of different sex. They were having sex with all kinds of different people. Our ideas about what lesbian sex was that day just blew up, right? And, you know, I think since then, that's what really put me on the path of taking all the stories everybody was telling me and realizing how powerful they were, how much power there was in sharing them in community, putting a room full of strangers together and hearing each other, witnessing each other, accepting, listening, reveling in each other. It's amazing. And now I've been doing it. I've been doing the workshop for about 12 years now. I've done it in Arabic, French, Spanish, Chinese, um, Korean. Wow. I've done it all over the world. And, um, and people are kind of like, well, you know, you're a white Western queer, you know, how can this tool work in all these other contexts? And the reason the tool works in all the contexts is that everywhere I go, I have local storytellers, mm -hmm. right? I go into a community, I meet with people, we sit together, decide what kind of stories we feel comfortable sharing, set up healthy ground rules so that people feel safe and aren't exposing themselves in some way that's going to be harmful after we set up a safe container for the room and then it just happens, right? It just unfolds. And in every culture I've been in, from the Middle East to Beijing to South Africa to Detroit, you know, um, kind of the same amazing thing happens that happened that day is lesbian services at the Whitman Walker Clinic. Um, which is liberation. I mean, in some places where I've been, where the sex that people are talking about, really, they could be put to death for it. Those rooms are the most amazing. The commitment to yourself and to your pleasure and to self-determination is, oh, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> um, and it gives me so much, um, I mean, joy, but it makes me realize this is no joke. 
even in the US where whatever your identity is and the laws may be on your side and everybody says, oh, you can have whatever you want. Actually, very few people have what they want. And all those different systems and authorities bearing down on people around what they can have and what they can't have, it deforms and, you know, constrains all of us. And what would our community and our nation be like if people weren't living with those kinds of constraints and actually were connected to themselves and each other? For me, that's revolutionary. That's always the way, that's always where I'm going to be going. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, one person at a time, you know, those connections that people make when they talk to each other about something super intimate, it creates that instant bond. And it's amazing. It's so powerful. And I actually, I want to explore that in a little bit more detail because I want to go a bit more into, you know, how your stories are so powerful that you can use them to map your desire and Mm -hmm. to, and I want to hear from you a little bit more about that. For right now though, I just want to invite you sexy globetrotters since, you know, we are talking about travel and going all around the world. So I'm inviting all of you to fulfill your wanderlust with SDC travel and you can enjoy an adventure with other like-minded couples who are open. Check out our annual trip to Greece where we'll be laughing Lavishing in the sun on the vibrant island of Crete. Indulge in the all-inclusive luxury event resort in the Mediterranean where you can eat, drink, bare your skin, swim, and play like Greek gods and goddesses. If you're seeking adventure and the erotic allure of hidden coves, naked beaches, and our SDC theme parties and playrooms, join us this May 2020 for our SDC takeover of Crete. Book your rooms now at sdc.com travel. I want to go a little bit into desire mapping. So yep. again, the title of that book, everybody, to go and check that out. It is called Great Sex, Mapping Your Desire. In your book and in your worksheets too, which I'm very lucky I got to, you know, I I have them and I've had a chance to work through them myself. And even as I mentioned before, I do feel like I live my life authentically and I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, I'm very, I feel really good about my answers here because there's a lot of alignment and uh, that's rare. But I can tell you right now that five years ago, 10 years ago, I would not be in this place right now. I wouldn't. It takes steps. It took me a while to get to this point. And some people don't have the, I guess, advantage of having someone to guide them or being able to guide themselves. So you are doing something amazing with these worksheets, with these workshops, with your book, helping people figure out exactly what it is that they want. So I want to hear more from you about desire mapping and how people can start to yeah. go through that process of understanding what re- what they really, really, really desire. Right. Well, for someone who doesn't have community and isn't saying anything out loud to themselves yet about what they want, they feel really stuck. I would say one of the number one complaints people come to me with is low libido. Mm. You know, low libido to me, you know, outside of any organic thing that's going on, if you don't have, you know, sort of physical or organic things that are crushing your libido, most people have low libido because they have been led away from their desire. They're actually, you know, acting out some script or some set of things that has nothing to do with what they actually desire. And so, you know, that's why they don't feel anything. That's why they don't want anything kind of in the wrong place, right? And they haven't even said to themselves, 
themselves what it is that they really want. So the book can be really helpful. It's, it's a journaling workbook style and it asks really basic questions. You know, what I think is really interesting is that when a lot of sex educators see the mapping questions, they go, huh, really? You do these transformational workshops? I mean, these questions are not that deep. They're not that, you know, it's like, you know, what's, what do you remember is the most, you know, uh, important sexual experience you've had to date, right? People go, oh, you know, whatever. That's, that's, that's deep. But that but, is okay. deep. Um, but I think the thing is, is for most of us, and a lot of us come upon like feelings of our desire when we're like five or six years old. You know, I mean, one of the things I put in the book is beating up my childhood best friend, my next door neighbor, right? Bobby Durand, who was just total terror in the neighborhood. <laughs> And like, I just pound him in my front yard and he's like on the dirt underneath my swing set <laughs> and he's crying. I can still see the dirt caked on his face and he's crying and, you know, he's done something, whatever it is. And I lean down and I kiss him and it just all melts away. I mean, I can feel the power of my kiss for the first time. I'm like five or six years old. I have totally a passionate relationship with this little boy that I, you know, it's like love, hate every day. We're playing every day. <laughs> and all of a sudden I understand that I, I can feel in my body, right? The power of the connection and the kiss and what it means to have power over him and then be able to comfort him. I mean, I have no language for this at six, right? right. But it's all in my memory and in my body and how I feel about kissing. So one of the points on my map is, or, or, you know, my mouth, my mouth as a site of exploration, connection, power, everything. I want to explore my lovers with my mouth. So when I put Bobby on my map and put that first, very first point on my map, I started to look at how kissing had evolved in all these other spaces and I could claim it. I could say, wow, I'm a kisser, you know, I, and I'm a fantastic kisser. I've had many people say I'm the best kisser they ever kissed. Okay. Mm. Well, line up everyone. Um, <laughs> and you know, that was happening to me at a very young age. At one point when I was 17, I had a lover who was like 25 years older than me. And he said, you're the best kisser I've ever kissed. And I thought, huh, really? Wow. You know, and it, 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 it started with Bobby, right? And then every partner I'd had, and I hadn't had too many before I had this older lover. But I really, I really, you know, my mouth was the place for me, right? So when others are taking the book and looking at these simple questions, what I hope happens for them is that I always say we all have this file cabinet with all these experiences. I mean, for some of us, whatever our Bobby story is, it's very overwhelming. Sometimes we're caught by parents in that moment. Sometimes <laughs> the Bobby in the situation is ashamed and really treats us poorly because they're afraid of how they're feeling. And then we get the message that we should never feel this way or talk this way about it again. Sometimes those early experiences, there's more clothes off or there's something more quote unquote inappropriate that the powers that be, you're, you know, somebody then takes you to a doctor or a priest or somebody to say, you may never do this again, or you get called in front of your parents. There's lots of ways that our early experiences of our desire that are really telling us something about ourselves. And these experiences are locked in our bodies, right? That 
we, we, we basically put them so far back in the file cabinet, we can't even access them, right? So what I say about the book is that it's really about facing the file cabinet and giving yourself the space to go through these simple questions and pull up your story, you know, really start to begin to see your story. Like the Bobby story, I didn't even get actually till years into mapping because the story I did remember was playing spin the bottle in high school with my first official boyfriend and how much I loved it, right? That like he and I, after the spin the bottle party, would just go over to my house, lay in my backyard and just kiss for hours and nothing else, like no playing with the breasts or other body parts. It was all about our mouths. And I always say, I got like a PhD in kissing, (laughs) Albert J. Dunn Jr. (laughs) in Randolph, Mass in the 70s. And I was always afraid my mother was watching me, wasn't sure, you know, was sort of hidden, sort of not. But I became a fantastic kisser just working with him over and over again in ninth grade, hours and hours on end. But it wasn't until I started thinking about that, that I remembered Bobby, right? Right. So it's like, if you can just start with something you know and something you remember, there's actually usually a whole bunch of things around the thing that mattered, right? And you can start to see your own patterns. You can start to see the places where your body gets off the most, the ways that people relate to you that excite you, right? You know, I never really understood how much I needed to have people talk me because I was such a top in the streets, right? And then, you know, somewhere in my late 20s, someone just started talking to me from that place, right? Someone just started to say, you are going to do exactly what I tell you to do. And I was (laughs) like, oh my God, what is happening in my body right now? (laughs) You know, this shouldn't feel this way, you know? And it was this really masculine expressing woman. And I was like, wow, I am finding something about myself right here right now and it was ended up being in a situation where like we couldn't have anything you know what I mean we had partners we had that set me back for a while right it's like I learned this thing it's in an inappropriate place what do I do with it and that is what a lot of mappers find again because we have so many different kinds of injustices bearing down on us while we form our sexuality a lot of us have really important stories and really important feelings that happened with people who had an inappropriate attachment or were actually being abusive to us. And part of the mapping work for me is giving people the space to sift out what's ours, right? What do we want to keep that has nothing to do with this abusive person, right? Your learnings are yours. And sometimes we learn amazing things about ourselves from people who want to do us harm, right? It's true. And we have to figure out how to let go of them and take the things we want to take so we can build what's ours. And so the The book really, you know, you go through the questions and then the whole like middle thick part of the book is really acknowledging that there are sometimes a lot of roadblocks in front of us for us to just tell ourselves the truth. And that's universal. That is because we're forming our sexualities inside of a very violent system that does not want us to form our real sexualities, right? Whatever that is. So that sifting process, the journaling book also helps with that sifting process. And then I think if you're a person who's really isolated and you've got the book, I've worked with people where they then tell one friend that they're working. 
on this, right? And then the friend gets the book, right? And now you've got a dialogue where you're both working on the same things. I had a really incredible thing in Minneapolis where a whole group of women bought the book together, had a book group, Skyped me into the book group, you know, <laughs> and, and that's how we met. And what was so great was they were just, they were building that community and that conversation themselves. So they were building that set of possibility around whatever it was they were coming across in their stories. And that's what I think is so important is even if you haven't told anyone about yourself, even if you haven't told yourself, you can start with the questions. And then as you go through, you know, when you feel safe enough, you can start to branch out. A lot of people that I work with take the book to their therapist, right? Ah. I have someone who mapped in a small group that I did. I do, I do these short groups where, you know, meet for six weeks and we do two and a half hours of mapping a time. And, and this person had been in therapy for 10 years. And at the end of the six week process, they had a fully drawn map. They brought the map to the therapist and the therapist said, huh, we've been working together 10 years and I don't know anything about what's on this map. Things that are on this map are all news to me. Wow. So I think, and this is someone who I think of and I know in my community as a very thoughtful, self-reflective, spiritual person who's a leader, who does all kinds of things to help other people self-actualize in all kinds of ways. Been in therapy 10 years, long-term partner. And these things on the map, nobody knew about. Not their partner, not their therapist. Wow. So I think that's not an uncommon situation. So I would just encourage anybody, wherever they're at in their process, even if they know that they're hiding things from themselves and they don't even know what those things are, you can start. You can start by just giving yourself the space to reflect on your own experience, on what you do know. And starting with what you do know, you can build from there. Oh, wow. And it takes us years to even sometimes examine reasons why we might, you know, have low libido or just be kind of disillusioned with sex or not want to date for a while or not really feel like we have any, I don't know, mojo or desire to try anything new. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I think that the beauty for me, and now that I've been mapping about 12 years, I have co-faculty members, about 30 of us, right, that have been telling stories and doing this together. And sometimes I just have a storyteller who does it once in one area and I never see them again, but a bunch of people are repeaters. So we we are in a constant state of mapping with each other, Yes, right? It's like our stories are ever evolving. We have breakups. We have periods where we're having no sex. We have periods where we're having a lot of sex. People find out, oh, I've been doing this for years and now I don't want to do this anymore. I, I'm discovering that actually I love this other thing that I've always said I would never do. It's amazing to watch each other just evolve. And what I love about the community I'm in is that we are a community of receivers. You know, it's like I I want to hear the news about what's on your map. I don't have any judgment about it. I don't have any advice for you. I don't have anything, you know, that, you know, is so critical unless you ask me for some advice, you know, which sometimes we do with each other, but mostly we're just really witnessing each other build our path. And it's incredible. You know, it's just incredible. I love it. I love too that I'm in the world where a whole bunch of us say to each other all the time, oh, well, put that on your map. That's on your map. Or... (laughs) We're going to this conference that we, one conference that we go to every year. And it's like, well, I can't wait for you to hear what's on my map this year. You know, I got this new thing on my map. It's just amazing. It's just such a gift. 
And that fluidity, that constant evolution, the constant process of discovering who you are and what you want, that's a lifelong thing. And, you know, who I am now as a bisexual, ethically non-monogamous kinkster, I guess, is not who I would have defined myself as at all 15 years ago. I was not in that place. And I'm so happy that I'm here now and I feel like, wow, I can it get any better, but I know it can get better. It can always get better, right? But I know a lot of people have had issues trying to do the same thing, trying to work through figuring out who they are as people and also what they want from their relationships, what they want with their community, whatever makes sense for them to express themselves in that authentic way. And uh, you mentioned, you know, offering advice and listening to people's stories. And actually, there are a couple of questions that I do have that I know a couple of people would like me to answer, but I want your help on them because I tried to tailor these letters to my guests. I think these would be very good. So most of you who are listening and have been listening for a while, you know, it is time for Letters to Lexi. So during this segment, I'm going to give you the shameless, no bullshit answer your friends might not have, the titanium ovaries or balls of steel to tell you. No question is ever too taboo or queer or weird, so don't be shy. I love getting your messages. Keep on sending them in. You can write in to me at Lexi at SDC.com. I connect with me on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lexi Silver. That's Lexi with an I, Silver with a Y. So this first letter is from Frankie. Hey, Lexi, I'm a polyamorous bisexual male in my late 30s, and I'm finally ready to come out to my family. The thing is, they don't know I'm poly or bisexual, so coming out to them is going to be a lot for them to process. My family is very conservative, and I'm not sure how they're going to react. But my two partners are a big part of my life, and it's not fair to them or to myself to continue to lie to my family. Do you have any advice that might make this process easier for them and for me? Wow. Well, I'm going to definitely defer more to Jamie on this one, but what I will say, what I will say, what I will say is that congratulations on feeling like you're ready to do this. It's a very big step. I'm sure that you have support from your partners on this and I personally get it as far as coming out as non-monogamous and bisexual in the same breath. It's a lot. You know, I have a very liberal family, so it's very different, but also I know that it's a lot. And it's a lot also for your partners who are understanding how much emotion is going to go into this. So I wish all of you luck in working through this and, you know, approaching your family. I think it's very courageous and I'm excited to hear what happens and I'm really crossing my fingers for you. But I will let Jamie see if she can give you some actual practical advice that would be helpful for you. Well, yeah. Yeah. Congratulations that you want to step up and be more present with your family. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's a big expression of faith in our families when we, you know, our families of origin, when we want to tell them these things, because we just, we just want to show up, right? We just want to be ourselves. So thinking about that, I don't know, you say you have a conservative family of origin. I'm wondering about the people who are adjacent to them. If there are people in your community or their community that you know of that care about them, that are an easier group of folks to come out to or and maybe you don't want to come out to these people before you come out to your folks maybe that's something you're feeling maybe you can and that's not an issue but I would try to line those people up as supporters for your parents beforehand. I came out as a lesbian in my family, my incredible Boston Irish Catholic family in the (laughs) 80s. And, you know, and I was disowned for 10 years. And when I look back on my mother, I have so much compassion for her. 
you know, because the whole way she'd organized and structured her life, I mean, I, I just didn't fit into any of it. And, and she had no one to talk to. She was so isolated. So, you know, for me as a young 20 year old, it was just so important to come and be myself and, you know, sort of demand for her to accept me. And, and, you know, she just had so few resources. I mean, I know my mother loved me so much, right? And, you know, it was crushing for her, right? To kind of have no way to make this work. So thinking practically about like, you know, maybe you've got siblings who could be there for them, who've already accepted you. So I, I think about that. I also think about you and your partners around this, because this is no joke, right? When this happens, and then they react however they are, say, let's say worst case scenario, they're awful, right? And then you go back to your two partners, all this stuff starts jumping off in your relationship. So I would have everybody line up their good people, their witnesses, their supporters, their loved ones, their therapists, whoever, so that basically whatever blowback happens doesn't really destabilize you and your partners. So thinking about that. And then the other thing I would say is just really taking in that this is a process and not an event. That basically, especially in really conservative families when you're coming out, I mean, I did finally have a relationship with my mom because she started to die. And, you know, so I had a year with her where I was taking care of her and we could finally say some of the things we need to see. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be in that situation, right? So it's like, but my dad in the end came around and I had a whole life with him for 15 years before he died, right? So it was a process in my family. And I think thinking that your first disclosure, being careful of them and careful about yourself, about where and how and what the context is. I think so many queers do this at Thanksgiving and Christmas, which is because everybody goes home, which is just the worst <laughs> time and space to do it. It's terrible. You know, thinking about some kind of setting that's going to work for them so people don't feel trapped. So also that if you have a family that has a history of being violent or a history of being aggressive back, you know, I don't know what your family situation, that you're protective of yourself, you know? So just thinking through the context of the share, like bookending that first conversation, making sure it's just not going to go on for hours or a weekend, or you're trapped in the family house for the weekend with your partners. You know what I mean? It's like, think about the shape of the conversation, the context so that you can make your disclosure, show respect for them, have their support people lined up, then you can take your break you know, be somewhere safe for you, have your support people lined up, you know, and then watch the process unfold, you know, see, see what happens, express our faith in them and our desire to be close to them and that you're doing this because you want them in your life and you want to be in their life. Yeah. So good luck. Good luck, Frankie. We're crossing our fingers for you. Oh, wow. So our next letter is from Shayla. I've recently discovered that I really want to be tied up, whipped, flogged, and humiliated. Oh, yeah. All right. But the problem is I'm in a relationship with someone who is not kinky and not very sexual, and I've been with her for over five years. I don't really know how to go about exploring this kink when my partner is not interested. I love her, but I feel like I'm really missing out. Please help. Okay. So it's a plus that you have discovered this new thing about yourself. I'm very curious as to how you discover that about yourself, but cool. Okay. It's something you want to explore. That's great. So you're in a relationship with someone who you're saying is not kinky and not very sexual. And you're telling me that your partner is not interested. You're talking about, you know, wanting to explore this and you're saying your partner is not interested. But if you haven't had that conversation yet about saying that you personally are interested in this, because you probably never spoke to your partner, 
partner yet about the fact that you are interested in trying this. Maybe the conversation that you've had in the past with your partner about, you know, um, exploring kink, or maybe they never told you that they wanted to explore kink. We don't know what our partner's thinking. We are not psychic. The only way to know is to actually have that conversation. Now, maybe there's also the possibility that even if your partner might not be interested in doing that themselves, maybe there is still a possibility for you to explore this. So there's other in-between things that you can still do even with a while having a partner who might not want to try this with you, might not even know how to go about it. You know, when it comes to kink, safety is very important. Psychological and physical safety are very important. So you do sometimes need to be with somebody who does understand how that works. And of course, you know, if your partner would be interested, they could potentially get, you know, training or, you know, learn how to do that. But the point I'm trying to make is maybe your partner might be open to the possibility of you exploring this on your own with maybe somebody who is a sex worker or is trained in this or with, you know, being part of the kink community. I have spoken to other people as well who have had something similar where uh, one of the partners wanted to be humiliated, you know, peed on, flogged, penetrated, and their partner just didn't really want to do that for them, but were happy to allow them the space to do that on their own. So it took conversation, which is the starting off point for where you're going to have to go. And just be honest. If you love your partner and your partner loves you and wants to hear you out, presumably want you to be happy, there is maybe something that could be worked out. Or maybe you don't know, maybe your partner is super kinky too and has been thinking about this stuff forever. And then, you know, there's all of a sudden a match. We don't know, but nobody will know anything until you open up that kind of a conversation. So yeah, I'll start with that. Jamie, would you like to add to that? (laughs) Yeah. Geez, I've kind of been this person. Oh, really? Okay. And it's it's two women. Is that what I got? That is what I'm understanding. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it seems like thing uh, she's saying is that it seems like there's a discordant around uh, libido, right? That seems like it. Libido, and it, so yeah. So I do think this can be a really hard thing. I definitely have been in relationships where I, I have you know, a much higher libido than my partner. They are patently monogamous, which it sounds like that's a little bit implied in this letter. And the hard framework for me is, you know, give, get, or go. (laughs) It's a really hard one that I've had to learn over time, which is what you were talking about, Lexi, which is like, you know, if I really love my partner and I want to be there for them and I'm interested in staying together for the long haul in a monogamous relationship, I have to either find a way to be the person who can give them what they want, or I have to be able to get them what they want, right? And if I can't do either of those things, I got to go or they're going to go. Yeah. You know, and so different kinds of ways of opening things up a little. I mean, I think a lot of lesbians that I know who feel very monogamous have created monogamish situations, right? Where a partner can play, but have no emotional or, you know, no partnership connection with another person so that those kinds of desires can get played with. And I will say watching people do that over time when, when desires are so compartmentalized and so important to you and you can't bring them back to your partner, it can be just a really painful, difficult and lonely process that Uh, often ends in a breakup, right? So the question for me, which is similar to the question you asked, I think, is 
what do they have? What can they have? What desires are really important to the partner? Even if, you know, they're relatively asexual or relatively very low libido, what really matters? What things can you create for each other that you can really cherish that are just yours that might then give you the space to let go of some of that need to have everything be in a closed system yeah. so that, you know, someone can explore. But tough one. I mean, I see a lot of serial monogamy in across the board because people can't figure out the give or the get, and then they just have to keep going. Yeah. It's something that I've done with people in my life in the past, and it's very hard when you realize that that is not going to work out for you, that that person just can't give you what it is that you need. And although you love them, it sucks. And mm-hmm. you have to to make a choice that's best for you because can you really live your life with these desires that you can never express in the constraints of the relationship that you're in uh, or the relationship style that you're in? So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a lot. So Shayla, if you do uh, need any l- more information, I can also direct you to some other resources to give you a bit more of, I guess, insight into ways you can open up that conversation in a way that might seem not threatening or you know too much for your partner because there are ways that we can approach our partners so that are a little bit maybe more delicate or sensitive than others. So uh, feel free to connect back with me on Instagram and I will message you after this too. So thank you. And thank you for your answer, Jamie. And um, that wraps up this week's letter selexi and we are close to the end of our podcast. So I will just repeat again, if you all want me to answer your questions about relationships or guide you to someone who can, you can email me at Lexi at SDC.com and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lexi Silver. That's Lexi with an I, Silver with a Y. If you're also check out my website, LexiSilver.com, where you can also connect with me. And that's how you can reach me. How can we reach you, Jamie, in all the places? So your podcast, your books, all the work you're doing, your workshops, everything. Yeah. Just uh, go to JustSexPodcast.com. And if you're looking to bring me to do a mapping workshop or anything like that, or you need me for coaching, my website's uh, JamieMGrant.com. Perfect. Oh, wow. And I'll be making those links available as well. And you can also find Jamie at SDC com where we are proud to have a bunch of her articles and maybe soon, maybe soon, uh, some worksheets from Desire Mapping. I'm very excited. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jamie. I, it was an absolute pleasure to finally have this conversation. Really great talking with you, Lexi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode, my lectural friends. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget you can learn more about sex, health, and relationships as you seek yourself, discover together, and create moments at SDC. Use my promo code 7070 to get two months free at SDC and try it out for yourself. Tune in Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America's Variety Channel for my next show. And you can always get my episodes on demand whenever you want them on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Music. Thanks for joining me, Lexi Silver, on Seek, Discover, Create. Until next time, stay lectual, people. Bye. We appreciate you joining us on Seek, Discover, Create, presented by SDC.com. Please join your host, Lexi Silver, on another erotic journey next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, may you enjoy exploring your sexuality. 